0: Beauty brands will continue to celebrate diversity with more shades and inclusive marketing campaigns. Beauty is for everyone. And 2024, I'm hoping, will really, really reflect that. And I think that inclusive beauty is really going to be a trend this year and hopefully not a trend that goes. (laughs) While we've seen makeup expanding to create more personalized shades and products, we can expect more in the skincare space and products tailored to individual skin tones and preferences in this ever-changing landscape of beauty. Consumers as a whole, as a general, access to wonderful products that are made sustainably, whether that be by an Asian founder, a black founder, a white founder, there needs to be people making products for people. It's not just, I'm making this for my segment or for my community.
1: Our formula designs on the human skin as an overall, but also on the darker skin specifically. And I think that this is something that we don't look, we don't look enough on this point because formulation is often focused on performance, right? It's performance only. This
0: year is really poised to be a year of transformative change. And it's marked by a commitment to celebrate diversity and redefine industry standards. The beauty industry has long been critiqued for its lack of inclusivity, both in terms of product offerings and marketing campaigns. However, I do think that the tide is turning and beauty brands are recognising the power of diversity and shaping a more inclusive and representative beauty narrative. So, as I said, historically, the beauty industry has been exclusionary, with limited shades catering primarily to lighter skin tones. And this lack of diversity has left many consumers feeling unseen and underserved. Research from McKinsey & Company reveals that beauty brands that prioritise diversity are more likely to outperform their peers financially. And the demand for products that cater to a wide range of skin tones is not just about representation. It's also a reflection of the market's shifting dynamics. And brands like Fenty, which only launched six years ago, which I was shocked by, in 2017, well, seven years ago, were seen as trailblazers in the industry. Launching with extensive shade collections from launch. Makeup counters have been seen as really scary places for people of colour. And I wish I could count myself the amount of times that my friends and family and myself were told, sorry, we don't stock your shade. As a woman of colour myself, but one who would be considered a much more accessible shade by the masses, even I struggled. Only to find makeup that was too orange or too pink for my skin and skincare that was meant for much whiter skin tones so for Rihanna to launch with a range of 40 shades straight off the bat was amazing and more importantly eye-opening for many of the larger beauty brands in the industry many brands historically offered a limited range of shades of foundations concealer and other complexion products this oversight left a significant portion of consumers with limited options particularly those with darker skin tones According to a 2020 study by Nielsen, 63% of black women and 62% of Hispanic women surveyed found it challenging to find beauty products that match their skin tone. The beauty industry has long grappled with a lack of diversity, both in product offerings and representation. This lack Of diversity is a multifaceted issue that spans product formulations marketing campaigns and the overall portrayal of beauty standards and here are some insights and stats highlighting challenges that the beauty industry is facing in terms of diversity the lack of diversity is often reflected in advertising and marketing campaigns as I mentioned previously And historically, these campaigns have predominantly featured models who align with Eurocentric standards of beauty, contributing to the perpetuation of narrow ideals. A report by Fashion Model Directory revealed that in 2019, out of the total number of models used in fashion advertising, only 32.4% of them were models of colour. Diversity is not only lacking in product offerings and marketing, but also in the leadership of beauty companies. There is a notable absence in diverse voices in decision-making roles within this industry. According to a 2020 report by McKinsey & Co, women of colour only represent 11% of executive positions in the beauty industry. Standards of beauty have often centred around specific hair types and people with natural hairstyles such as afros or braids have have often faced discrimination. I, for one, have experienced this across different spaces that I've worked in and in different corporate spaces and it sucks I'm sure you guys can tell by my tone in this episode that it is a very very personal thing for me and it's not something that I thought I'd ever talk about so openly on the podcast but it definitely needs to be spoken about so this sort of issue with hair extends to both product development and workplace policies. So a study published in the Journal of Black Studies found that black women are 1.5 times more likely to be sent home from the workplace because of their hair. It's 2024. I hope that these things are going to be coming to an end. Consumers are increasingly demanding more diversity and inclusivity from beauty brands and... Brands that fail to address these concerns risk losing their customers. And many of their customers do prioritise these things and want to shop with brands that champion them and offer representation for them. And another study that I found by Euromonitor from 2021 revealed that 79% of beauty consumers believe it's important for brands to offer products that reflect this a diverse range of skin tones and ethnicities. And the beauty industry is experiencing a real change driven by a wave of founders who are taking up space and challenging those traditional norms. And I'm speaking to two of those founders today. These founders are often representing a spectrum of ethnicities and backgrounds and disrupting the status quo. According to a study by Nielsen, diverse founders are more likely to create products that resonate with a diverse customer base. And this is something that my second guest today speaks about. You don't want to create something just for your community. You want to create a product for everyone where you have been put in a box for so long, you want to create a product that is outside of the box and caters to everybody because beauty is for everybody and that's where that inclusivity comes in. This entrepreneurial spirit is not only about reshaping the industry but also fostering a sense of empowerment and representation for consumers who have felt left out of that beauty conversation for so long. And whilst the makeup industry has made strides in expanding shade ranges, the skincare space is now following suit. This year, we can anticipate a surge in products specifically formulated for individual skin tones and preferences. This shift is not only about acknowledging the diversity of skin tones, but also recognising that each skin type comes with its own unique needs. Research from Mintel indicates that personalised skincare is a growing trend, with consumers seeking products that cater to their individual concerns and um, conditions. This is where smaller brands that are can be a little bit more agile. And even if they are more sustainable brands as well, they can be more agile in this. As the industry embraces inclusivity and sustainability, smaller and emerging brands are demonstrating unparalleled agility. Unlike established giants, these brands can embody sustainable practices from the start, making conscious decisions about ingredients, packaging and ethical sourcing. We've discussed time and time again on this podcast how consumers are more likely to make a purchase if it's considered to be sustainable. The agility of these brands allows them to pivot really quickly, responding to the demands of an ever-evolving market. Addressing these challenges requires a collective effort from beauty brands, influencers, consumers and industry stakeholders to foster a more inclusive and representative beauty landscape. It's about creating a positive beauty experience for all and affirming that. We've got some really special guests on today's episode, as I said, so each of them is a female founder and more importantly, they're a woman of colour coming from different backgrounds and taking up space in this beauty industry in a really bold way. My first guest was born in Cameroon and raised in Normandy in France. Noelle is a former beauty e-commerce director who experienced the skincare struggle firsthand while moving across Europe and the USA. Fueled by passion and empathy, she partnered with top scientists to create effective and safe clinical skincare developed from the ground up for darker skin, whilst promoting research equity for all skin types. So Noelle Mishu is the founder and CEO of 456Skin. Let's chat to Noelle. Let's kind of get into it because we were talking offline about how important it is that what the work it is that you're doing is. And for me, as a woman of colour and seeing that you may not necessarily be considered a quote-unquote sustainable brand, I think personally what you're doing is championing sustainability in a really different way and I think is actually a really valuable way that we're not speaking about so much of and we know that the beauty industry has got this historical lack of inclusivity and I really want to know a little bit more about 456 and how you're contributing to the shift towards celebrating diversity especially in terms of like formulating products that cater to a really wide range of skin tones and skin types.
1: Absolutely. And it's true what you're saying that a brand like 456 may not have that statue of we are. A sustainable brand but the very interesting thing for 456 and because of the founders the kind of founders that we are it's like yes we started this mission to close the skincare racial equity gap but sustainability is embedded in our dna you know it's the kind of things that you you don't think about it but just because of the way you set up your company and your practices and your process you realize at the end that we're, we're actually being very sustainable um, at the moment but Talking about inclusivity, this is a question that I get asked a lot. So I always want to make sure that we are differentiating representation and inclusivity. Right. Representation is I'm making diversity visible in my marketing campaign. It's, let's say, it is quite performative, you know, uh, uh, most of it. And inclusivity is really ensuring that the diverse needs of all of your consumers are factored in into your. Entire value chain, you know, as a brand or as an industry from the regulation to to that, the research, the testing, the manufacturing, and the selling. But what we've seen is that with the recent push for more inclusivity. The industry is acting more on the selling part, which is I integrate Black, Asian, Latinas, Middle Easterners, mixed people in my ad. They are ambassadors. They are my influencers. And the community who love these people and identify with them are going to feel considered and they're going to believe that this product that they use in the ads are also made for me and the purchase. That's all good because we, we do need representation. We need this mirror effect, but... I feel like we're still missing the whole point about inclusivity, which is we need science to, to step up. We need regulation to be inclusive. We need institution and academia to be inclusive. So at 456 Skin, our mission is really been about that skincare racial equity gap, because the reality is that the skin health outcomes of people with skin phototype four, five and six, which are people of color, as we call them. They're just worse today. They're not great. And this segment is becoming the the global majority. So surely performative inclusivity is just not the long-term solution, right? People are awakening. Their awareness is growing. We can't think that representation is going to be the solution. And we've been really doing this work that the industry hasn't done for the past 50 years. And so it's really been about... Studying the physiology of darker skin tone. So, like, look at the skin structure, look at the function of the skin. Let's include the genetic factors and the metabolic implications of skin tone on your skin health. And then in our skin tone research lab in France. And this is one of the reasons why we're a very unique brand because we have our own research lab. We have our own manufacturing units and we've Put ourselves in a very unique position where we can do this work without any compromise or outside influence. If I may say so, so our lab is in France, and we've been creating in collaboration with really people of color through our customization and iterating based on the community feedback, a health centric, effective solutions for yeah that dryness, that acne, the hyperpigmentation, and dullness, in a way that he really. I would say heals and nurture the skin for the long term. And we've really been advocating, right? Because when we talk about inclusivity, it's just not at brand level. When you get to the brand, usually it's too late. There's like a whole system that comes behind. That's, you know, if it's not inclusive, then by the time we are talking about brands, it's way, way too late. So... Working towards more inclusivity has been, yes, setting up the scientific process and getting to know people, their physiology, which we have zero data on, no understanding, no expertise. But it's also about advocating for a wider change in the system, because it's a whole system. You look at dermatology, right? The issue starts there. I don't have the data for the UK, but you can extrapolate for the words. We always look at the US. Uh, only three percent of dermatologists in the US are people of color, sixty percent of them not trained to diagnose and treat skin problems on the melanated community. Then the regulation which was set in a time where people of color were just not considered at, as equal members of society, and even if it has improved in some area and yes the EU and the FDA says you should Perform your tests on everyone, but usually it's only done on phototype one, two, three. And we see it today like patch tests, important tests like patch tests, which really are you know designed to determine if an inflammatory reaction is going to happen because of an active ingredient on the formula. It's still calibrated on white skin when we know that inflammation doesn't show on white skin, the way it shows on darker skin. And so we talk about inclusivity and it's like, this is a massive thing that we need to push for change. You look at raw material manufacturers, right? These are the people that set the tone in the industry in terms of what ingredient is going to be hot, what's going to trend, the vitamin C, the retinol and all of that. But even them, when they kind of objectify this ingredient that they're creating, they would Test them for efficacy and tolerance, mainly on phototype one, two, three. So you may be a brand that's working for inclusivity, and you don't know this. You're using this ingredient thinking, I'm trying to do my best. Little do you know that these ingredient were never tested on darker skin tones. So... The entire ecosystem needs to evolve to really meet that consumer needs. And yes, we can't focus on the past. We can't change history, but we have to evolve. And science has to be part of that. Otherwise, you know, inclusivity is just a marketing term. You aren't
0: taken seriously, whether it's in the beauty community, whether it's injustice within the medical industry. I mean, a lovely doctor that I actually went to school with, um, funnily enough, she's just written a book to call Divided. Dr. Annabelle saint She's just written a book on this and about the injustice in the medical system. She's she's called to have books changed to show that all of the training is biased towards white skin tone.
1: It is the data on that is when you look at medical images as they pertain to skin. About two to 4% will show people the color, the rest of it. And it's crazy to me. Think of it like you type, you go online, you could do it now, uh, type da 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 for hyperpigmentation. You would think hyperpigmentation, which is the number one issue for people with darker skin, five different. and six, will we get images that show them? Absolutely not, very few of them. So, hmm we still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> <I was just laughs> we do definitely have a lot of work to do. And it's funny
0: because earlier on in the episode, I'm speaking a lot about the Fenty effect and how Rihanna, as a woman who is a musician who broke into the beauty industry, came out with this sort of life-changing, groundbreaking formulation of 42 colors across her, her whole collection with launch. But we've got brands that have been established for 30 years and being told as a woman or a person of color going to a a makeup counter that oh sorry we don't cater for your skin like why not the like yes. black and brown people exist why are we not being catered to
1: they really did not and i remember this prior to fendi being largely you would go to a sephora in france and literally the sales for all of the you know all the, the luxury brands they would not even look at you in the eye because they had nothing it's not their fault they're very embarrassed they can have nothing to offer to you and there are so many amazing entrepreneurs that had been working, you know, for decades trying to push this inclusivity request towards the industry. And the response was always, we're not really doing it because it doesn't work. We've tried and it, ha- it hasn't worked. They're not buying, et cetera, et cetera. And Rihanna and the LVMH group, when they did this collaboration, it was so powerful because you have a powerhouse at Vianna who is loved by everyone across the melanin spectrum. And then a giant like LVMH also putting behind their marketing powers and their the entire process. And they were able to give us this proof that actually see when you really, really do it and you do it really, really well. People actually buy, that's it, 100 million sales in a month. What else?
0: Maybe it's a generational difference, but I think so many people forget that MAC did it. MAC came out with a lot of different shades, but it took them time to extend it to the range that Rihanna came out with, with
1: Fenty but Mac really did try and champion. She really took it back. Like the movement was already there uh, and there were brands like Mac, or the brand that would really try, it, but it was not getting like, this massive awareness. And she did that. And like you say, you have to give props where props are due because the aftermath of that is that a company like 456 is able to put together a brief and tell industry people, look, you know, we're, we're making progress with makeup. We're making progress with hair. Can we talk about skin now? <laughs> I don't think anyone would have listened before, but they still there's proof. It was a financial proof that this can be, you know, it can serve the bottom line quickly. And, and now people are listening this is the problem it's always about the bottom line isn't it it's about how
0: a financial sort of standing for that and that's what's so upsetting within the beauty industry and I think one of the questions that I have for you is sort of I want to know a little bit more because as you're saying you're a brand that really does embody agility and inclusivity in the sense of like let's talk about skincare guys let's talk about skincare for different people. How have you sort of navigated the evolving beauty landscape, particularly in response to that rising demand for inclusivity? And I think in specifically that personalised
1: approach to skincare that you offer with 456? Terms like in, inclusivity, sustainability, personalization. I can even push it to like continuous scientific curiosity and improvement. They're all embedded in our DNA. It's by the nature of who we are, um, who I am, who my founders are, and we're all people. We really have this incredible empathy towards the human being, like the human skin and how we can play our part in making it better. And the advantage, like I was saying before, of being a new generation skincare brand, because that's really what we consider ourselves to be. There's like there's a, this old paradigm of skincare and there's a new one starting and we are part of it. And uh, the, the advantage of being that and the founders that we are is that we're, you're so focused on equity. We're so focused on people's actual need and responding to this need in a way that's very respectful of the human health of nature and really learning from nature because you know believe it or not nature just tends to be super smart and (laughs) and does things better and there's a lot to learn there instead of you know pursuing all these trends you know that are just impossible to navigate and and without losing really your brand essence if we talk about personalization we are rooted in personalization this is actually the way that we found that we were going to do this research without it taking 10 years because a uh, little story, when I, when we started this project, we have an amazing beauty network in France. It's called the French Cosmetic Valley. And I had been looking for a scientist to co-create the brand with me. Couldn't find it. Went to labs and asked them to co-create. They told me, we're not co-creating. We have a white label. That, that's what everyone does. You take it, tweak it to the minimum, go to market. I ended up uh, with this fabulous network pitching the brand in front of, a you know, amazing executive from the industry. And they were like, Noeli, what you're trying to do is so necessary, such a huge problem. It's true that industry is not looking, but it's going to take you 10 years to even get something out. And I was like, OK, I'm, you know, I'm going to try anyway. But personalization allowed us to do this work faster because the way we set up our system, which was, we are going to build this understanding of the darker skin difference with with customization, and we're going to create products, put them in the hands of customer, put them in a feedback loop, let them tell us what we're doing right, what works, and just measure this efficacy along the way. It allows you... To, to create with, you know, waste not really being a part of your process. And that's just who we are. And that's something that we're going to keep as um, a central element of what the brand is. But in terms of sustainability, and this term is very complex, right? It's a very complex term to navigate just because right now, I feel like, and going back to what you were saying, that the beauty industry has kind of been moving slower towards sustainability, when we feel like fashion has been more like forward with it. But we have not agreed on what sustainability means fully, so it's really up to each brand to decide how they're going to approach sustainability. Until we agree, for me and for Four Five Six Gain. We really look at sustainability in in many ways. I would say two main ways. The first is we look at sustainability of our creation, our formula designs on the human skin as an overall, but also on the darker skin specifically. And I think that this is something that we don't look we don't look enough on this point because formulation is. Often focus on performance, right? It's performance only. Let's take all of these assets and all of these put in in a bottle. It's great for marketing, but we're not really looking at the cost of that performance on the skin and the overall health and how that's going to backfire and is going to keep people in a consumption loop, right? This is this is, this is like I haven't found the efficacy, so I keep going and consuming and buying, and how these performance-driven attitude has really participated in the global issue of skin sensitivity. So we we like looking at that, like what are the long-term effects of my formula on skin health and how I am going to kind of have this balancing act of, yes, performance, but performance that works for the skin and for the health rather than against it. And when you have this philosophy, something very interesting happens, right? It is very natural is that your formula are going to never include why they use ingredients. First of all, that are not healthy for the skin, not healthy for the body, whether we're talking about suspected endocrine disruptors, uh, nanoplastics. These are things that are widely used in formulation. These that can be absorbed by the skin and the human body has still not evolved to recycle these plastics. So we don't know what they're doing in our bodies. And so seeking that blind performance with like extremely high percentage actives is just unsustainable to the skin for the long term. So. For me, that balancing act is part of sustainability. And when you have this approach also, like not using nanos in your formula, that is like zero, that's that's zero plastics, that zero silicone is part of sustainability. But we also look at how are we going to design our formula, source ingredients that are respectful towards the planets, right? And even if you can never have full control of what your raw material distributor manufacturers are doing we ask where is this ingredient where, where where has it been sourced where is it coming from what's the process you know towards um, getting it how are you working with the local communities right are you guys moving toward like positive impacts like regeneration or upcycling and then when we clear all that we will get the ingredient and still study it. make sure that you know. purity, no nanos, etc. And it is about designing sustainable packaging. And for this, I know it's a big discussion. What do you do? Do you go recyclable plastic? It's plastic. Do you go glass? And then that has all the implications. It's very complicated. For now, we have chosen glass because we're like, at least we know this can be reused. It can actually be recycled and it's not participating in the great issue of plastic. But I can never fault a brand that's using plastic packaging because I just know how, how complicated it is now, and that the industry has as a whole has not made the decision to move toward more sustainable packaging. So smaller brands are really out of solutions here. We look at energy. And this water rationale for us, like, how do you use water? How do you make sure that you create a water system that is so effective to the skin, that is so well used that you don't have to go into, you know, wasting when you do your manufacturing. And one big thing that we look at as well, especially when we are creating reams of products, we make sure that we are formulating them with like a high biodegradability index and no ecotoxicity, right? Because think about it, your cleanser has plastics and we can agree. Some people say, oh, plastic are really good, emollient, blah, blah, blah. Fine. I'm here for the argument. I can hear it. Although I don't, I don't entirely agree. I'm like, this is a very rich industry, very rich. Why are we putting plastic on people's bodies? Like, I don't agree, so I don't do it, but I can hear the argument. But even think about it, if you say plastic have benefits for the skin, what happened when you're rinsing that product that has plastic? It goes into the waterways. Exactly, exactly. So how does 456 contribute to the empowerment of diverse beauty founders
0: and ensure that their voices are not only heard, but actively represented within the beauty industry?
1: Empowerment is such an important part of the inclusivity equation. You know, I think that just being out there, and being vocal uh, about uh, (laughs) this issue, not being afraid to say where we need to focus our work, that shows other people that way, you know, what what she's doing, that sounds different, that sounds interesting. Can I get any inspiration from that? I think leading with science and knowledge, it's been a massive contribution to this movement, you know. I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs, you know, coming with ideas and coming to me and being like, this science that you're talking about is so mind-blowing. How can we do it? Because starting your own lab and having the manufacturing unit is not accessible to everyone. And I am always so open to sharing. I I will share my insights. I will help you with, you know, your formulation if you want to. I would tell you what my experience has been like. And there is this um, African say that goes that when spider unites, they can tie a lion. And I really feel like we cannot afford to be in silos when it comes to this issue. We have to collaborate. We have to support each other. Because if I'm saying it and then she's saying it, there's like a hundred thousands of us saying it, then maybe... We'll get to a point where people are listening, you know, and we talk about generational success and generational wealth. It's how can we create a bigger, a better, bigger ecosystem where this wealth, that this money that the consumers are spending on beauty products is going back to the community. So empowering each other and collaborating with each other is not something that's necessary. It's not an option. It's a necessity.
0: Wow, wow, wow. That's all I can say. So thank you so much, Noraly. Um Really, really fabulous to speak with her. So next up, I'm speaking with Therese Bungobaya, founder and CEO of Koba Skincare, about her journey as a black female founder in the beauty space with her skincare brand. Koba in Ningala means turtle, and it's a nod to the founder's Congolese heritage. Turtles symbolize longevity and protection, shielding against external aggressors. I really loved speaking to Therese. Yeah, let's get into it. I'm super honoured to have you here. And I want to know a little bit more about your journey as a Black founder in the beauty space with Koba and how it shaped your perspective on sort of inclusivity within the industry. What positive changes have you sort of witnessed over the years of your time in the industry, I should say?
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. So I... You know, before I started COBA skincare, I had been working in the beauty industry for at least a decade. I had seen things, noticed things, and the reason why I created COBA was because myself I was frustrated about certain things that were that felt very personal at that time. But the more I was talking to people and the more I realized that I was not the only one. And other people could benefit from whatever I decided to do. So to be more specific, I, I had a massive insecurity about my feet. My feet were very dry. I had very hard skin. And you don't really realize, but you have to show your feet a lot. I was doing mat pilates. You know, you go to the gym, you go to, I don't know, the swimming pool, sandal season, Your your feet are on display and I was not really feeling comfortable. Even going to have a pedicure, I always get comments about when was the last time I had a pedicure. For somebody who works in the beauty industry, it's a little bit, you know, (laughs) offending to feel like I'm not polished, not put together, which is not the case. It's just the fact that they were no great offering for people with very dry skin or dry skin on food care, on the food care segments. You find a lot of things for body, face, but it stopped at the ankle level below that, there is not much. So that's why I decided that I would create a solution that actually works for people like me who, who have the same insecurity and concerns. And I know that Black men or Black women, when they live in mild climates, like in Europe, they tend to have dry or dehydrated skin. So I was one of them, but there are many other people who can definitely benefit from, you know, a food cream like the bottom-up food cream that we created and which is now our best so that's how it all started such a personal part of your body because as you said as much as generally especially in the UK you don't get
0: your feet out for the majority of the year but you have those moments like as you said the gym where you should be in a safe space with no judgment but when you're doing Pilates or yoga or anything to that effect and you've got some crusty, <laughs>
2: crusty heels or dry skin. It's, it can be a really self-conscious moment. It's not a nice experience, exactly. So this is really why I started Koba. And you see like exactly as you explained it, why you're tackling this issue of having dehydrated or dry skin, you're actually boosting your overall confidence. And you're going to feel, you know, good about yourself. Not worried about, you know, what your feet look like. And you're just going to go and enjoy that yoga session. Go and enjoy that, you know, Pilates session. Go and actually relax while having your feet done. You know, so it's not such a tiny thing.
0: Let's talk a little bit about sustainability. And so, sustainability is becoming ever more increasingly important in the beauty sector. Can you share how Cobra Skincare's approach to sustainability and any initiatives that you've kind of implemented to ensure that you as a brand have a really positive impact on the environment?
2: So I started working on Koba in 2020, October 2020. And for me, it was quite natural that sustainability would be, you know, at the core of the brand. So if you start a beauty brand nowadays, you have to tick certain boxes. So you do it maybe I mean, for different reasons, either it's marketing or, you know, like, that's gonna things gonna be things that you're going to communicate about, or it's just one of your values. And for us, it was the last option. It's really natural that we are a natural brand. So we try to use you know ninety seven percent of natural ingredients. It's a brand which is vegan, cruelty free, that is not things that we always talk about, but it's it's at the base of the brand. There is no we couldn't do it over well, you know, in a different way. So for me, that's super important. And then, because the, the the hero ingredients of uh, koba is safu oil, which is an oil that comes from a fruit that comes from a tree. We have to care for the planet. We have to give back when we can. So, you know, with my family, we bought a land in Congo, where my family and I are from. We are planting trees to have control over this uh, part of uh, the production process for koba. There is no such a thing as safu oil industry that doesn't really exist it's an industry but it's not even an industry but you know the, uh, the extraction process of the oil is very artisanal it's very manual so it's like a savoir faire that you really need to transfer to local populations so in congo for example there are a lot of safu trees and safu fruits but people don't really realize that you can make something out of it. So, it, you know, either they eat it, but today there is no such a thing as it's not like industrialized. So this is what we're trying to do. We're not like trying to create like a massive industry, but we just want to be able to yeah, transfer that skills to a team that we are training. And then they can, you know, become also um, well, self-profitable, they can just, you know, do it themselves because it is really easy to do and people don't realize it so much. Plus, you know, we, um again, from day one, we signed up to be part of this program, 1% of the Planet, where we give 1% of our annual uh, revenue. No matter, even if you know how low they are, we have to, we are committed to give back to the organization so they can invest in projects that really um, supports the preservation of the, the planet, the environments, and also like local initiative. And that's something I want to do more. I would love to, uh, you know, but I want to do it properly. So I need to find like a way to, to give back even more in Congo, where, you know, hero ingredient comes from. So that's something we're going to work on for next year.
0: You've got a really unique approach to beauty, as I said, first of all, in the ingredients and what the first product that you created was for, like the area of your body. What inspired you to create the brand and how do you see it contributing to more inclusivity and a
2: more diverse beauty landscape? I took my learning from doing my research on on the food care industry and like really seeing that there was a gap in the market for this uh, specific uh, segment. And I then extended it to other areas that also suffer from dehydration and dryness, like the lips and the hands. And that's how it all became... The first collection of Koba, the ages collection that offer, you know, food cream, hand cream and the lip pan and the brand when, you know, when people talk about Koba, they really talk about the texture. They talk about the sense. They talk about the branding. I feel like it resonates to people. We're not like surfing on any type of trends or, you know. It's just what it is. And it's inspired by nature. The branding is like very green. Uh, It's also to remind the fact that it comes from a tree that comes from this fruit, the safu. And our customers are from all ethnicities, all genders, all body shapes. And this is also what we are trying to show, you know, whether it's on social media, the models we work with all our communication, we focus on providing you a safe, clean, effective solution that is going to work on your skin and, you know, get the best version of your skin. So it's like, it's very smooth, it's healthy, it's soft, radiant. That's all what matters to us. Whatever you look like, we just want you to know that we have your back <laughs> and that you're going to feel good about yourself. And we are like a friend in that sense. We are just like, almost like a big sister we have your back, don't
0: worry. <laughs> I want to reflect a little bit on your experience as a founder in the space, and more specifically as a Black founder. And this episode is all about highlighting some of the, the trash that has happened over the years in the beauty industry and how we're looking to making a more inclusive industry. So how has Cobra actively worked towards promoting that inclusivity and what positive
2: impacts have you had yourself on the industry as a whole? We all know that, you know, Black funders they have less access to funding than other funders from other ethnicities. That's a fact. But since I started COBA, I feel like there is a positive change. We talk about that issue a lot. It's everywhere in the news, social media. We talk about it. So people actually know that there is an issue and it's not a taboo. I see more and more organizations trying to take actions, creating new opportunities for Black founders, whether it's grants, achievement awards, incubators. And I feel like all these actions result in increasing their awareness, creating new uh, revenues and new funding opportunities for the Black founders. I was lucky enough to be part of uh, one of these programs. I was one of uh, the grantee of uh, the Glossier Black Beauty Grants program, which was powered by the Black Girl Fest team in the UK. We were one of five friends. We were part of the program and it was a great opportunity. And there is a continuity after that, you know, like we are still part of different groups. We are We are still like talking about how we can even, you know, prolong all the benefits of this program uh, now that the program is over. And also I see like a lot of sorority within Black Founders. We are creating opportunities for them for ourselves. We are not just, you know, waiting for the opportunities to come to us. We are like, you know how there was this saying that if you can't enter by the door, enter by the window, does that make sense?
0: <laughs> yeah, if you can't get in by the front
2: door, find out, like you've got to find a way in Exactly, somehow. And I feel like this is what we, we are doing more and more. You know, I'm part of so many different groups where we are sharing best practices, networking opportunities, and like, yeah, whether it's like uh, pitching opportunities, funding opportunities, we are also showing support to each other when it's needed, and we're also buying from each other's, you know, brands. And that is really important. That matters. So that's something that is changing, definitely. And I feel like social media definitely played a big part in that sense because we are all more vocal about these issues and we have more access to others, you know. It's all thanks to social media that I I have access to <laughs> to Glossier in the first place and all these other founders and that now we can talk to each other and, you know, we are also like partnering. Like I work with some of my peers in France, in the UK. We bring our brands together because we we don't really believe in competition. We just feel like, one success is going to open the door to more success within the community. So there is really this sorority. It's
0: wonderful to hear this because, as you said, like we know that it's 2% of women across the whole that will get VC funding. And I think it's I can't even remember the stat for, for black women and black founders in the space. And it's minimal, when there's so much money out there being given out to these businesses and getting such a small proportion of it. It's wonderful to see that five great black founded brands are getting that foot in the door and you made your way in through the front door. You didn't need to go through the window. (laughs) So for my final question, off the back of what we've been talking about, do you have any advice for aspiring young entrepreneurs in the beauty industry?
2: I don't really like the term. I don't feel like I can be a mentor of anyone yet. (laughs) I'm still like myself navigating for this journey of entrepreneurship. But just sharing my experience of what I've seen so far and like, you know, having maybe this uh, windows, maybe on social media where I'm going to do like live questions, questions and answering uh, these type of things. Because I feel like it's difficult to find just one piece of advice. I have so many. I would say that you need to have a very strong story because you are going to be questioned all the time. And if you don't believe in your story, it's gonna be tough to convince other people to follow you. And don't let people put you in boxes. Me, that's something I'm always fighting for. I'm a black founder, but my products are not just for black people. Yes, they are designed with black people in mind, but, It's not a color, you know, when we're not doing makeup. So it's more skin type and it's really for everybody. Everybody, but it works for the people with the drier skin. I don't want to be in a box. (laughs) So, and and I'm trying to not let people put me in a box. And I think that's very important. Consumers as a whole, as a general access
0: to wonderful products that are made sustainably, whether that be by an Asian founder, a black founder, a white founder, there needs to be people making products for people. It's not just I'm making this for my segment or for my community.
2: Another piece of advice would be um, just stay authentic, be yourself in the communication that, you know, you will have on social media Just don't compare yourself to anyone, you know, it's just fine. Just if you stay authentic, people will get you. You feel like people are not seeing, people are not listening. It just takes time, but your community will be there. And if they really buy into what you're saying, even if you're not like buying the products, they're going to be supportive. They will, you know, show you that they they care for you on the long term. I don't know if that makes sense but <laughs> you know what i mean it's like it's, it's so easy to always compare yourself to other people other brands you know you, you don't really like take the chance to to appreciate what you already have and just stay focused just do your thing do it well it will pay off you know it will pay off in the long term
0: Thank you so, so much to both of my incredible guests today. As I said, it was a really personal episode for me. And I really wanted to take a moment to highlight the fact that diversity and inclusion in 2024 still means something. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it. And I, haven't, I hope I haven't scared anyone off because I'm all for talking about issues going on in the world. And I really wanted to bring on a few more other founders from different backgrounds for this episode specifically But unfortunately, due to time constraints, a lot of people could join me. So I appreciate um, Noelle and Torres making themselves available. So, yeah, we aren't where we need to be yet, but we are getting there. So I'll see you guys next week. Until then, you can subscribe and listen back to previous episodes of Sustainably Influenced on all good podcast platforms. You can follow at Sustainably Influenced on Instagram and TikTok. This season of Sustainably Influenced was produced by Content is Queen, sound editor Amber Miller, and presented by Bianca Foley.